Chapter Three of Conan and the Queen of the Black Coast by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, The Horror in the Jungle. Was it a dream the nighted lotus brought? Then cursed the dream that bought my sluggish life and cursed each laggard hour that does not see hot blood drip blackly from the crimsoned knife. THE SONG OF BILIT First there was the blackness of an utter void, with the cold winds of cosmic space blowing through it. Then shapes, vague, monstrous, and evanescent, rolled in dim panorama through the expanse of nothingness, as if the darkness were taking material form. The winds blew, and a vortex formed, a whirling pyramid of roaring blackness. From it grew shape and dimension. Then suddenly, like clouds dispersing, the darkness rolled away on either hand, and a huge city of dark green stone rose on the bank of a wide river, flowing through an illuminated plain. Through this city moved beings of alien configuration. Cast in the mold of humanity, they were distinctly not men. They were winged and of heroic proportions, not a branch of the mysterious stalk of evolution that culminated in man, but the ripe blossom on an alien tree, separate and apart from that stalk. Aside from their wings, in physical appearance, they resembled man only as man in his highest form resembles the great apes. In spiritual, aesthetic, and intellectual development, they were superior to man as man is superior to the gorilla. But when they reared their colossal city, man's primal ancestors had not yet risen from the slime of the primordial seas. These beings were mortal, as are all things built of flesh and blood. They lived, loved, and died, though the individual span of life was enormous. Then, after uncounted millions of years, the change began. The vista shimmered and wavered, like a picture thrown on a wind-blown curtain. Over the city and the land the ages flowed as waves flow over a beach, and each wave brought alterations. Somewhere on the planet the magnetic centers were shifting. The great glaciers and ice-fields were withdrawing toward the new poles. The littoral of the great river altered. Plains turned into swamps that stank with reptilian life. Where fertile meadows had rolled, forests reared up, growing into dank jungles. The changing ages wrought on the inhabitants of the city as well. They did not migrate to fresher lands. Reasons inexplicable to humanity held them to the ancient city and their doom. And as that once rich and mighty land sank deeper and deeper into the black mire of the sunless jungle, so into the chaos of squalling jungle life sank the people of the city. Terrific convolutions shook the earth. The nights were lurid with spouting volcanoes that fringed the dark horizons with red pillars. 
after an earthquake that shook down the outer walls and highest towers of the city, and caused the river to run black for days with some lethal substance spewed up from the subterranean depths, a frightful chemical change became apparent in the waters the folks had drunk for millenniums uncountable. Many died who drank of it, and in those who lived the drinking wrought change, subtle, gradual, and grisly. In adapting themselves to the changing conditions, they had sunk far below their original level. But the lethal waters altered them even more horribly from generation to more bestial generation. They who had been winged gods became pinioned demons, with all that remained of their ancestors' vast knowledge distorted and perverted and twisted into ghastly paths. As they had risen higher than mankind might dream, so they sank lower than man's maddest nightmares reach. They died fast by cannibalism and horrible feuds fought out in the murk of the midnight jungle. And at last, among the lichen-grown ruins of their city, only a single shape lurked, a stunted, abhorrent perversion of nature. Then, for the first time, humans appeared. Dark-skinned, hawk-faced men in copper and leather harness, bearing bows, the warriors of prehistoric Stygia. There were only fifty of them, and they were haggard and gaunt with starvation and prolonged effort, stained and scratched with jungle wandering, with blood-crusted bandages that told of fierce fighting. In their minds was a tale of warfare and defeat, and flight before a stronger tribe which drove them ever southward, until they lost themselves in the green ocean of jungle and river. Exhausted, they lay down among the ruins, where red blossoms that bloom but once in a century waved in the full moon, and sleep fell upon them, and as they slept, a hideous shape crept red-eyed from the shadows, and performed weird and awful rites about and above each sleeper. The moon hung in the shadowy sky, painting the jungle red and black. Above the sleepers glimmered the crimson blossoms, like splashes of blood. Then the moon went down, and the eyes of the necromancer were red jewels set in the ebony of night. When dawn spread its white veil over the river, there were no men to be seen, only a hairy, winged horror that squatted in the center of a ring of fifty great spotted hyenas that pointed quivering muzzles to the ghastly sky and howled like souls in hell. Then scene followed scene so swiftly that each tripped over the heels of its predecessor. There was a confusion of movement, a writhing and melting of lights and shadows, against a background of black jungle, green stone ruins, and murky river. Black men came up the river in long boats, with skulls grinning on the prows, or stole stooping through the trees, spear in hand. They fled screaming through the dark, from red eyes and slabbering fangs. Howls of dying men shook the shadows. Stealthy feet padded through the gloom. 
Vampire eyes blazed redly. There were grisly feasts beneath the moon, across whose red disk a bat-like shadow incessantly swept. Then, abruptly etched clearly in contrast to these impressionistic glimpses, around the jungled point in the whitening dawn, swept a long galley, thronged with shining ebon figures, and in the bows stood a white-skinned ghost in blue steel. It was at this point that Conan first realized that he was dreaming. Until that instant he had had no consciousness of individual existence. But as he saw himself treading the boards of the Tigris, he recognized both the existence and the dream, although he did not awaken. Even as he wondered, the scene shifted abruptly to a jungle glade, where Ingora and nineteen black spearmen stood, as if awaiting someone. Even as he realized that it was he for whom they waited, a horror swooped down from the skies, and their stolidity was broken by yells of fear. Like men maddened by terror, they threw away their weapons and raced wildly through the jungle pressed close by the slavering monstrosity that flapped its wings above them. Chaos and confusion followed this vision, during which Conan feebly struggled to awake. Dimly he seemed to see himself lying under a nodding cluster of black blossoms, while from the bushes a hideous shape crept toward him. With a savage effort, he broke the unseen bonds which held him to his dreams and started upright. Bewilderment was in the glare he cast about him. Near him swayed the dusky lotus, and he hastened to draw away from it. In the spongy soil nearby there was a track as if an animal had put out a foot, preparatory to emerging from the bushes, then had withdrawn it. It looked like the spore of an unbelievably large hyena. He yelled for Ingora. Primordial silence brooded over the jungle, in which his yells sounded brittle and hollow as mockery. He could not see the sun, but his wilderness-trained instinct told him the day was near its end. A panic arose in him at the thought that he had lain senseless for hours. He hastily followed the tracks of the spearmen, which lay plain in the damp loam before him. They ran in single file, and he soon emerged into a glade to stop short, the skin crawling between his shoulders, as he recognized it as the glade he had seen in his lotus-drugged dream. Shields and spears lay scattered about as if dropped in headlong flight and from the tracks which led out of the glade and deeper into the fastnesses, Conan knew that the spearmen had fled wildly. The footprints overlay one another, they weaved blindly among the trees, and with startling suddenness the hastening Cimmerian came out of the jungle onto a hill-like rock which sloped steeply to break off abruptly in a sheer precipice forty feet high and something crouched on the brink. At first Conan thought it to be a great black gorilla. Then he saw that it was a giant black man that crouched ape-like, long arms dangling, froth dripping from the loose lips. 
It was not until, with a sobbing cry, the creature lifted huge hands and rushed toward him, that Conan recognized Ingora. The black man gave no heed to Conan's shout as he charged, eyes rolled up to display the whites, teeth gleaming, face an inhuman mask. With his skin crawling with the horror that madness always instills in the sane, Conan passed his sword through the black man's body, then, avoiding the hooked hands that clawed at him as Ingora sank down, he strode to the edge of the cliff. For an instant he stood looking down into the jagged rocks below, where lay Ingora's spearmen in limp, distorted attitudes that told of crushed limbs and splintered bones. Not one moved. A cloud of huge black flies buzzed loudly above the blood-splattered stones. The ants had already begun to gnaw at the corpses. On the trees about sat birds of prey, and a jackal, looking up and seeing the man on the cliff, slunk furtively away. For a little space Conan stood motionless. Then he wheeled and ran back the way he had come, flinging himself with reckless haste through the tall grass and bushes, hurtling creepers that sprawled snake-like across his path. His sword swung low in his right hand, and an unaccustomed pallor tinged his dark face. The silence that reigned in the jungle was not broken. The sun had set, and great shadows rushed upward from the slime of the black earth. Through the gigantic shades of lurking death and grim desolation, Conan was a speeding glimmer of scarlet and blue steel. No sound in all the solitude was heard, except his own quick panting as he burst from the shadows into the dim twilight of the river shore. He saw the galley shouldering the rotten wharf the ruins reeling drunkenly in the gray half-light. And here and there among the stones were spots of raw, bright color, as if a careless hand had splashed with a crimson brush. Again Conan looked on death and destruction. Before him lay his spearmen, nor did they rise to salute him. From the jungle edge to the river bank, among the rotting pillars and along the broken piers they lay, torn and mangled and half-devoured, chewed travesties of men. All about the bodies and pieces of bodies were swarms of huge footprints, like those of hyenas. Conan came silently upon the pier, approaching the galley above whose deck was suspended something that glimmered ivory-white in the faint twilight. Speechless, the Cimmerian looked on the queen of the black coast as she hung from the yard-arm of her own galley. Between the yard and her white throat stretched a line of crimson clots that shone like blood in the gray light. End of chapter 3